There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. podcast this is the podcast that covers all the different types of variations of rackets such as organized crime drug cartels corrupt politicians and there's no better example in my opinion of a racket than modern day slavery and really what i'm going to discuss today with the great guest is um, a form of modern day slavery and prison labor my guest today is amani sawari she is the official spokesperson for a group called Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Very good. The reason why um, we, we've got you on the show, obviously, is to talk about there is a national prison uh, strike taking place right now. Typically, these kind of prison strikes, they don't get much media attention. This one ha has gotten the most. Um, and I think part of that is because this is, I would say, by far the largest prison strike that, that has taken place in this country. Am I accurate on that or, or no? Definitely, definitely. 2016 was the largest of its time, and this one's even bigger and much longer. So it's definitely getting a lot more attention and a lot more participation from the inside and outside. Um, could you maybe give us like a, an, a, an idea of, say, the scale of what is taking place? So we've got at least 17 states that pledged to participate in the strike. After week one, we got confirmation from 11 of those states, meaning that we got communication back from inmates that are in those prisons that are participating in work strikes, hunger strikes, boycotts, or sit-ins at their facility. Um, and those confirmations came in the form of letters, word of mouth from loved ones and family members, um, and just direct communications. So we've been getting those confirmations in while the Department of Corrections is, is failing to confirm any of the strikes happening. You mean to we've tell me they're not being totally to. forthcoming on this one? You know, we thought that they would, you know, be a little excited about it and want to confirm, but they're definitely not. And so that's another uh, source of confusion for some people that call in and ask about the strike to their local prison and then the officials are like oh no businesses as usual operations are normal there's nothing going on here but then the same prison a video goes up of someone doing a hunger strike so officials are aware of what's going on but they're doing their absolute best to push their own individual agenda and have this illusion of safety um cast over what they're doing and then also rep repressing prisoners voices they don't want people to know the types of conditions that prisoners are in, but prisoners are very adamant about making sure that as many people know as possible during this time. Right. Um, do you have an idea of, you know, about how many, you know, prisoners are involved in this? How many, how many prison, how many prisons themselves? Are, are, so uh, the number of prisons is there's going to be at least 30 right now that are participating um, in some states like South Carolina, 
we've got six prisons that are striking there in states like Florida, where there's a lot of uh, political tension going on. We've got five prisons that are participating in Florida. Um, individually, uh, when it comes to the actual prisons, who's in there themselves striking, it could be anywhere between two prisoners. Like in Ohio, we had um, David and... Um, Another guy, Jason, they were hunger striking in Toledo's correctional facility, and they were moved into solitary confinement. So we knew that they were striking, but they were moved as an act of sort of discouraging other per, per, prisoners from participating. Um, but then re other, retribution as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so then in other states, like where I'm at in Washington state, we had 200 prisoners kick off on the 21st with the with hunger striking in the Northwest Detention Center. So it just really depends. Um, we don't have the solid numbers yet. We know that in some states there are hundreds and some there might just be one or two guys or a unit working together to uh, strike, but we don't have the solid numbers. We just know the numbers of states and then the numbers of prisons. How many people in those prisons will have those numbers by the time the strike is over and communication limitations are kind of lifted? Of course. And, and I guess this is probably a dumb question, but is, is everybody who's participating facing some form of punishment or retaliation? Or um, I definitely think that they're, they're definitely facing some form of retaliation. Um, in states like New Mexico, McCormick prisoners, they have been subject to daily strip searches since August 20th. And, but then in other prisons, there are prisoners that are singled out, like Comrade Malik. He's in Sussex prison in Texas, and he has been singled out, put into solitary confinement. And he's not allowed to write letters to the outside, have phone calls, get commissary. Um, and so that's an individual case of retaliation that's that he's facing, and it's pretty high. So it really depends on the prison and uh, where they're at in organizing. Like Comrade Malik, he was a, a main organizer, so they really wanted to make sure to silence him in a way. Make an example of him, yeah. Right. But then with other ones who are sort of jumping onto the strike as participants, they might be moved to solitary. They might be in lockdown. It just really depends. So the strike started on August 21st. Um, if you don't mind, I know that there's um, symbolism to that date. If you could just kind of just give them a little bit of the details as to why. Yeah, so August 21st is the anniversary of George Jackson's assassination. It's been 47 years since he was killed in 1971 at San Quentin Prison. And then the ninth, which marks the end date of the strike, is the 47th anniversary of the Attica Uprising. So those were the two dates that prisoners chose to have this strike time be between because of their symbolism. Okay. Um, like you mentioned Attica, was this sparked by kind of a, a singular incident or was this something that was kind of long in the running? I'd like to say a combination of both for two reasons. Uh, long in the running because prisoners were actually planning on doing the national prison strike during 2019. So they have been planning this. Their 10 demands were crafted and brought down from 35 demands. So 
So they've been working on this and trying to solidify this, and they wanted to do it a year in advance just to make sure that word got out as far as it could Mm -hmm. inside of the walls before calling the strike. However, it is a response to an individual incident in the same way because after the Lee County massacre happened in which prisoners went on fighting as a result of their their lockers being taken away by staff and then there were uh, room assignments that were switched up after their lockers were taken away um, with rival groups in different units. Now they have no place to safe place to put their their personal items and their their secure belongings. And so that just caused tension that led to seven hours of fighting and at least seven men losing their lives in that prison. And so as a result of that, prisoners called for the national prison strike as a direct response to what happened in Lee County, because this can happen anywhere. It can happen at any any penitentiary in any state. Um, It's already a a violent and, and volatile place. And when the simplest thing can happen that can really just make tensions pop off and make it a very, very dangerous place for prisoners. So that's why they call it the strike now. You said Lee County. What state is that? That's in South Carolina. Oh, okay. You mentioned they brought it, uh, you know, whittled it down to 10 demands. Um, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. The first demand was to kind of oversimplify it as basically recognizing their human rights. Right, um, exactly. If you could, maybe you know, everybody knows that prison is a is a tough place. Um, you don't have to be a liberal or conservative to understand that. But if you could, maybe just kind of expand a little bit of, of, upon that human rights issue. So prisoners do have rights. They have multiple rights that are supposed to be protected by law. Um, and they want those rights to be protected. They want to make sure that they're in places that are safe, where they know that they're not at the risk of dying at the end of the night because it's overstaffed or there or there's no one that's on the yard watching or um, the staff to be where they're supposed to be. So prisoners want their, their rights protected in, in a lot of different ways. They have the right not to be sexually assaulted in prison. They have a right to be accommodated while they're in prison, accommodated uh, physically, emotionally, um, mentally. They have a right to receive uh, services, medical services, um, psychological services, and they have a right to be uh, in a place where where they feel not luxuriously comfortable, but comfortable enough to uh, not be in pain day to day. And so when they're in really hot conditions, like Comrade Malik, who's in 110 degrees Fahrenheit uh, cement cell block that's covered in soot because of previous fires that happened in Sussex prison in Texas, then this is this is a violation of his human rights to be within a comfortable environment. When prisoners don't have access to taking classes or having a access to rehabilitation services just because they've been labeled a violent offender, then this is a, a violation of their human rights. When prisoners are served food that's inedible or rotten or um, doesn't meet their dietitian or uh, nutritious needs, then that's against their human rights and that should be corrected. And they need to have access to being able to have those rights protected. And right now there's no overseeing body that can manage when 
a human rights violation has occurred in the prison, and that's something that also needs to be corrected. Yeah, and again, with with the way I try to present these things, I try not to always speak to the converted. I want to I want to speak to the people in the middle ground and even the people who oppose these types of reforms. And the main one of the main things with this issue that I try to get across is. A lot of people really don't care about a prisoner's um, well-being, but what you have to understand is that these people will get out of prison someday. And if you, if like, like, like you said, you describe those kind of conditions, how do you think that person's going to adjust? You know, back in society, it, it's basically a formula that is going to push people back into prison. Um, exactly. Um, so yeah, again, the, the prison system, and as you've obviously intimated, there, it's very counterproductive. Um, but I think really the second demand is the one that obviously gets the most media attention and, and catches most people's eyes, and that's fair wages. Um, mm -hmm. if, if I understand it right, is twenty cents I think is about the average um, prison labor rate. And, right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Maybe if you could just kind of tell the listeners who aren't familiar with this issue, I guess sort of the role of private companies as far as prison labor is concerned. Yeah, so private companies play a huge role in the exploitation of prisoners' labor, whether that be the companies, the third-party companies that come in as services, like uh, Horizon Healthcare is a healthcare provider that manipulates prisoners in the system, um, GTL, Global Telephone Network, they come in and they're a third-party company that, that profits off of the system, um, JPay, messaging company that profits off of the system. So these are all companies that charge for their services. They charge prisoners for healthcare uh, visits. They charge prisoners to talk on the phone, to send messages. So that's one way. And then another way is through using prisoners' labor directly um, whether that be because they're the ones doing the, the, for example, Walmart is a company that uses prisoners labor to demanufacture their products. So all of Walmart's products come from other stores. And so Walmart uses prisoners to strip the, the identifying labels off of those products so that they can be relabeled and sold at Walmart. Companies like McDonald's use prisoners' labor to create their uniforms and to uh, make their plastic cutlery and their containers. Um, there are companies that use prisoners in, in agriculture in the fields um, to manage the crops. So prison labor is used in companies like AT&T for their customer service representatives. So prisoners do this type of work um, and if those same jobs were offered on the outside in the communities where these prisoners were from, it's very highly likely that these, that these same people wouldn't be in prison. So companies like to exploit prisoners' labor because they know that, that they could pay anywhere between like 10 cents, 20 cents an hour to nothing. And the reason why it's called slavery is because prisoners don't have a choice. Some people say, oh, they'd rather, um, you know, they'd rather be there. They want to work. They want to do something. Well, yeah, anyone would rather uh, be on the phone or maybe doing some remedial work than sitting in a cell alone for all day um, or being at risk of getting into a fight on the yard or whatever the case may be. Or some prisoners, when they refuse to work, they're sent to solitary confinement. So the choice isn't really one of, of, of freedom. It's, it's not really 
a free choice that they're making when they decide to take on a, a job opportunity. And even the, the prisoners that fight fires in California, they'd rather be in those deathly conditions making $2 for a day of work instead of being at the prison. That says a lot about how inhumane our system is and how inhumane our prisons are, that prisoners rather risk their lives um, being ill-equipped to be out there in a fire fighting uh, instead of inside of a prison. Yeah, and, and basically what you're describing, if you took the prison part out of it and if you described a human a human trafficking victim, mm-hmm. it's quite similar. It's quite, it's, it's quite yeah, similar. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. There's a lot of similarities. Um, these are people that come from impoverished communities and they made decisions based upon that poverty that they were suffering from. And now these are the consequences of their decisions and they're being shipped around like products. I'd say very similar to the way that um, tra- humans are trafficked, um, sex traffickers and things like that. They're shipped around the country, especially the ones that are in the federal system. They go so far away from their families that are in other states. And some prisoners, for example, like Rashid Johnson, shipped from one state to another and in response to retaliation. So this is the way that they can break family ties. They can weaken a prisoner's ability to feel safe, to feel comfortable in their environment. Now their family members can't make that drive to go see them. They might have to catch a flight or schedule to have a whole day of work off, which many can't afford to do to go see a loved one. So it, it really is like a form of human trafficking. I know your time's limited. We won't be able to get into all 10 issues. I'm, I'm going to link to that as well. Um, what, are the, what are the issues? And I, I think I'm pretty well versed on a lot of these subjects, but this one I was surprised about, the, the seventh demand of mm-hmm. denying rehab. Um, so if I'm understanding that right, is that say if somebody has, a, I guess, a violent background or something, they'll deny right. Exactly. There are some states that do deny rehabilitation services, programs, and classes to prisoners that have been labeled a violent offender. They can receive that label because of what they were sentenced with, whether it was a felony or, or what happened during the case that labeled them as being violent. But once that label is put on them, then they're, they're sort of sentenced to death by incarceration in a way, because not only are they, they not allowed to receive programs to go towards their education and their development, but because of this lack of this resource, their recidivism rate goes up exponentially. So they're not able to, to prepare themselves for going back out into the outside. And for prisoners who are sentenced with violent crimes with a lot of time, this comes from the idea that they can't be uh, rehabilitated, which we know isn't true. We know that there are prisoners that make mistakes in their younger years due to the people that they were associated with or the communities that they were from or the lack of, of resources that they had during that time in their life. And then they go into prison and they realize that they want to do better for themselves and they should have an opportunity to make that decision and to to choose an option of growing, developing, educating, taking classes. And they shouldn't be rejected because of a label like that. And being labeled a violent offender is just another way to dehumanize someone and cut them off from society. And we don't want to see that happen to our incarcerated loved ones anymore. Well, and not only that, again, I, I try to talk to, again, to everybody, the people who really don't have any sympathy for a prisoner. I, again, I try to talk about this in pragmatic terms. 
I think if anybody should be getting rehabilitative services, it's violent offenders. Definitely, for sure. (laughs) They should be targeted much, much more. We want them to have access to changing the way that they think about the world, certainly, so that when they do come back out, they're no longer a violent individual. So we want to target them and give them that attention. We don't want to marginalize them or cut them off as a group entirely. Yeah. Uh, like I said, there, there's a lot of issues here. Um, is voting rights. I, I'm, I'm in Florida. There's actually a state ballot. I have a feeling that it will um, actually pass to restore uh, voting rights for felons. I'm curious, um, do, do you have an idea of what scale? Um, um, for voting rights for prisoners, I'd say it's really varied because some states will allow people in jail to vote, but not people that are in prison for felony crimes, or they'll allow uh, people once they've gotten on parole or once they finish parole or when they're out for two years or whatever the case, there's no standard in this country for uh, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals voting rights. And we really need to apply a standard that allows every adult citizen to vote because prisoners need to have ownership over the changes that they want to make in their environments because their lives depend on these changes. We can no longer silence them and we need to take their lead in the reforms that they wanna see in the criminal justice system because they're the most intimately aware of the reforms that need to be seen. It's it's done the time that we're, we're voting for them or voting on their behalf. We need to allow them to have a voice in the political sphere especially because they play such a huge role in our economic sphere. People notice when when the highways aren't clean or when products aren't as cheap at a store or when their license plate isn't isn't out on time or whatever the case. People notice when prisoners' work isn't being done. The prisons notice when prisoners' work isn't being done. So we need to allow them to have a voice in addition to the the economic impact that they have on our society. Yeah, I mean, just... um... Again, it basically gets back to that sort of human rights aspect and the counterproductive aspect as well. When when you disenfranchise somebody in that way, you're you're not exactly incentivizing this person to act in a lawful manner once they're mm-hmm. released from prison. That's um, an amazing point. Yeah. yeah. All right. So again, I know your time's limited, so I'm going to have to kind of wrap it up here. Is there anything you just kind of like to add for the audience, just to tell them about? I guess. Uh... I'm trying to speak to, to both groups that, that you mentioned, but just people being really intentional about where they decide to spend their money is really important if they want to see improvements in our criminal justice system. Then we need to really improve the way that we, we spend and we buy, and we need to hold these companies accountable that are choosing to abuse prisoners' labor and say, hey, I'm not going to go to McDonald's anymore until they pull out of prison using prison labor. I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. I mean, it's much better anyway. But on top of that, you know, we need to be intentional about the way that we're spending our money, especially in a capitalist democracy. So that's what I'd add you, that that really is a brilliant point and it was something i wanted to bring up um, because i've looked at your website and your uh database there in my opinion is by far the most is the, you know the most expansive i i was shocked yeah. at just the scale of the number of companies and i knew there were several um mm-hmm. but i'm going to link that's a very good point i'm going to link to that in the show notes and, and that really is the best form of activism is not giving these companies that are guilty of this type of behavior you're your hard-earned money. Right, exactly. 
really want to thank you for taking the time um, to talk to us about this issue. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for amplifying prisoners' demands with your platform. I appreciate it, and we all appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Um, Just one last word to the audience. Um, Please share this. This is an issue that people need to know about. Give it a five-star rating. Subscribe to the podcast. Um, Really, the best way to um, support my podcast is to go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series, Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs, gambling, and the decriminalization of prostitution. Uh, So on that note, again, thank you, Armani, and uh, everybody have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have the license. Price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.